Welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. It's time to change out of that Newsboys t-shirt and put on your Sunday best because we have got a lot to break down in today's episode. Joining me today in this shining city on a hill to discuss the indescribable, unchangeable, awe-inspiringly bad films of the God's Not Dead series are Libertarianism.org's own Aaron Powell. Thank you. Glad to be here, I think. And Paul Matsko. Always a pleasure. Now, the films in this series all rely on and, and are focused on asserting publicly and against seemingly insurmountable cultural and institutional odds that God, specifically the fundamentalist evangelical Christian God, is not dead in opposition to this sort of Nietzschean postmodern moral relativist claim that he has died such that religion, and once again, specifically fundamentalist evangelical Christian Christianity, is unnecessary, obsolete, and in some cases, outright evil. And it's not just about Christians like banding together to provide service and stewardship and love and all of these values that they profess in the film that are a part of Christianity. Um, so it's really not surprising that a, a movie that is about professing your faith and proving it starts with a credit billing the apologetics research by um, before any of the stars of the film, I think. It, it's one of the like first five. Um, so it's based on this book uh, that is all just a sort of a handbook of arguments proving the existence of God. Um, and I should say today we'll be having a discussion about the films and their arguments, um, which are related to but absolutely different and separate from the arguments for or against the existence of God. So we should say that outright. But the movie itself is about proving things. There's talk of evidence, debate, proof. It has a, a whole debate me energy, uh, which I think at least a couple former high school debate kids present in this recording would be able to tell you are, are rarely good at actually convincing anyone of your argument. Uh, so it, it just makes me wonder, who is this movie for? You know, the David A.R. White who stars is, is the only actor, I believe, in all four films in the series. He plays Pastor David. Um, he said he he's also one of the producers of the film. He said he wanted to make it to give Christians a voice. But what is that voice being used for? Who is it talking to? Is this like empowering people to evangelize? Is it actually trying to convince people with these arguments? Like, wh who is this for? I, I shudder at the idea of someone sincerely bringing their non-Christian friends to like a church screening of these movies and thinking that it would have an evangelistic effect. Like, I, 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 the cringe factor of that. So it's not, it's not written evangelistically, uh, whether it thinks it is or not. It's, it's for the choir, right? It's preaching to the choir and it's hard to overstate just how big apologetics were in, um, so, you know, I, I grew up in fundamentalist Christianity, still an evangelical. So, but it's hard to express just everyone was obsessed with apologetics, which ostensibly means, uh, defending your faith. And so the the idea in theory is that like there are all these people out there who are questioning the tenets of Christianity and you need to do apologetics to tell them and show them why they're incorrect, why Christianity's correct and right. 
Um, but very often with apologetics, that that kind of culture of apologetics, this is a time when uh, people like Ravi Zacharias, the late departed, and now you know we now we know he was a sexual predator. <laughs> Ravi Zacharias, his books were everywhere. Uh, they mention. Uh, one of the oldies, uh, like C.S. Lewis, pops up at one point in the movie. C.S. Lewis quote, uh, the only a real risk can reveal the reality of a belief is a big line. That's a C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, Lee Strobel pops up, who is a very popular apologetics author. Um, so it was a big deal in kind of evangelical circles in the 90s through 2000s. And, uh, but it was always inward focus, focused ostensibly outward focus, but really it was like, oh, you're a Christian. You've heard a tough thing. You've heard someone say that Christianity is a lie or that the the, the biblical canon is incorrect or that God is dead or, or whatever. And here's the reasons why you shouldn't have to feel bad about that or worry about it um, or you know lose any sleep over it. So it's internally focused, not externally focused. Uh, and so I think that's that's at the core of the the thing you're getting at here, Landry, which is this thing that's supposed to be Outward looking is very uh, inward and kind of narcissistic, to be honest. That was my reaction as the the token Buddhist in this conversation. Watching these films, uh, my immediate reaction was if they are trying to portray these views and the the place of evangelical Christianity in American society in like a good light, they have they have completely failed. <laughs> Because it is, it's ultimately like a deeply condescending, like it's particularly the first movie um, is a deeply condescending film. Like you have all of the non-Christian characters suffer horribly in this. And, and the implication is that it's their fault, but it's all stuff like it's the one gets cancer. The atheist girl who has the meet is murder sticker on her car gets cancer. And then cancer leads her to realizing that her atheism and her progressivism were wrong. And she embraces Christianity. Uh, you have the, the Muslim girl who is listening to Christian sermons and is found out. And her dad just throws her out of the house. Like, and then he, in the fourth one, it's not really clear if he converts to Christianity, but he at least becomes sympathetic to it. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he's like the good guy again. Um, and then you have spoilers at at the end, the evil college professor gets hit by a car while crossing <laughs> the street and is dying on the road. And the the reverend shows up and is basically like, this is good. This is good for you. You have this opportunity to convert, which of course he does at the end. And then they just have this kind of upbeat music swelling as they stand over his corpse. Um, they say this is a reason to celebrate. Yes. They say this is a reason to celebrate while standing over a man's corpse in the middle of the road. Um, it, it does not portray them in a good light. And that's, that even sets aside all of the bad arguments that are just, peppered throughout but i think one of the really interesting takeaways from someone who you know the two of you grew up much more in these like evangelical circles i did not and what was fascinating to me watching it was how much we've talked about on free thoughts a bit and trevor has has mentioned this like that much of american conservatism is essentially a a victimhood or a persecution movement like it is I think there's a there's a kind of person, it's a personality trait that is 
like you're really adverse to change and you're really comfortable in the familiar and any change is is disorienting or scary to you but the way that that gets spun out in the political arena is change is seen not as just kind of society's change taste change preferences beliefs and all that but that it's a taking that if things change from what you were used to it was because someone was trying to take that away from you you're a victim of like a concerted effort to destroy the familiar and and that motivates a lot of conservative politics and that's very much on display here and and it's particularly acute here because it is elevated to like nonsense levels like the level of persecution if you watched these films and thought this is what it's actually like for christians in america you would it it doesn't map at all to the way you know christians still are overwhelmingly the majority of americans i have I have a philosophy degree. I was in a department at CU Boulder, which is a very progressive place. And we talked about the arguments. We spent far more time on arguments for proof of God than arguments against the existence of God, because those are the historical philosophical ones that you get. And they're all treated very sympathetically. No Christians were being beaten up on by it's it is just like utterly unrepresentative of the world. But if this is how you see the world and you see your place in it, then it's no wonder that we end up with such profound reactionary politics. So you're telling me that in your intro to philosophy class, they did not make you sign a piece of paper with your name claiming infallibly that God is dead so that so that the professor could have proof of a unanimous front and they could skip the first chapter because everyone fails it anyway, which is already the, the, <laughs> the like rules of the universe. I'm like, so we have a professor who is so bad at his job that his his students all overwhelmingly fail the first chapter in his <laughs> intro to philosophy course where he demands university level work. Like you are in an intro to philosophy class as a freshman in college. What are they expecting of these people? But but what you're talking about, this sort of like appeal to tradition or, or you know, the appeal to tradition as a logical fallacy is used by a lot of these very conservative leaning people who see these like instances of what they conceive as a, a taking away of their rights. It's very much. It is overt in the first film, but it is, for the most part, I think, cultural in the way that it is is portrayed. It is the culture of the institution of the academy and of this secular world. And I want to say that we specifically, we watched, for this episode, we watched the first film and we mandated you had to watch the fourth film. We didn't have – you didn't have to watch the, the second or the third, but we wanted to get the journey of where they went. And the leap from the first film to the fourth film is just mind-blowing because we go from this you know, persecution complex to outright Christian nationalism – in the fourth film, and those conservative ideas are, you know, it, it it brings them up a lot because now we're talking about, you know, freedom isn't free ideologies, which you can understand are important because yes, people went and fought for things, but the, it is the fact that your liberty only comes from the fact that someone had to fight from it not being taken from you, rather than you should have liberty because you are a person in the world. 
Uh, and it's just it it had not clicked with me until I saw the journey from one to the other, the sort of complicated, messy way of that rhetoric manifesting. Well, there's like this natural arc between one and four and that and there's a, a bright line that connects the two. Um, so but I, I think first, like, I mean, to Aaron's point about the condescension of it, uh, it it's all caricatures all the way down. So there's that great scene in the first one where Willie Nelson of Duck Dynasty gets confronted by our like, um, you know, PETA friendly. Uh, I I write the new left blogger, um, and uh, and she says like, look. So first of all, she is a caricature of what a non-religious, non-evangelical person is, right? Like, uh, so in the evangelical imagination, people who don't, who are you know not us are sinister, scary, and kind of one-dimensional villains. So she's, uh, she's, you know, she's accuses them of murdering animals. She doesn't get hunting. She's uh, shrill and hostile. She's uh, a journalist, of course, you know, fake news journalist here. Um, she has terrible relationships. Uh, I mean, like, it's, you just, it's, so she's a one-note character of what a secular person must be like. But then what's interesting is that, they then project onto her a view of themselves, right? Her understanding of evangelicals is a caricature as well, which is why she asked questions like, you know, to Willie Robertson's wife, oh, um, uh, you know, why aren't you in the kitchen with a baby on the hip? Do you listen to everything your husband says? Um, and so on. But the thing is, the only one speaking, this movie is written by and for evangelicals. In other words, it is their own anxiety over how non-evangelicals view them that propels that caricature of themselves in the movie. So it's kind of this like self-referential, self-generated nestling doll of caricature in the show. But that – that I mean to, to Aaron's other point, like that's rooted in – um, a uh, uh, Richard Hofstadter, his idea of like uh, the paranoid style view of the right, which isn't entirely accurate, but I, I think you see a nice expression of it here, this status anxiety that evangelicals in this movie, um, I, I think you have to root it historically. This movie is in the 2010s. And so this period, like when I talk about religion in the digital age, religion in the modern uh, era, modern American era, um, I'll often talk about like peak American evangelicalism is the 90s and the aughts. So you have to like cast your brain back. It's it's the 90s, it's the 2000s. The Cold War were victorious. America, you know, God and country won over, uh, you know, the the atheistic communist regime. If you go to the Billy Graham Museum, notably his son Franklin Graham is who the Muslim girl is listening to on her iPod. That's that's his. Billy Graham's son. But if you go to the Billy Graham Museum, there's a huge exhibit with a recreation of the Berlin Wall with an actual piece of the Berlin Wall with, with the implication being that like Billy Graham went to Berlin and Christianity helped win the Cold War for America and the West. So you're coming off this real high geopolitical high. If you're a kid of the 90s, you know, you went to the every mall seemingly had a Thomas Kincaid art gallery, the painter of light. Uh, you would hear acoustic CCM playing over the speakers. Uh, you know, uh, every strip mall had a Christian bookstore. Of course, uh, Born Again W is an office in the 2000s. So there's this moment of like peak evangelical um, uh, uh, position in kind of social life and in politics. And 
it, but there's this constant like undercurrent of anxiety that things are okay now, but when's the other shoe going to drop? And, and this, this fear of, of, of others, you know, eventually that gets sublimated into a fear of, I don't know, you know, Hillary Clinton and her emails. Uh, it gets sublimated into like a fear of Muslims, you know, post nine 11 Islamophobia. And there's artifacts of that here too, but there's that, yeah, that constant fear that the other shoe is going to drop. Um, and that, so that then connects it. You see that in the first movie, there's a line where, um, uh, our protagonist for his name offhand, he says, I feel like God wants someone to defend him, uh, which is not a thing to say from evangelical theology that a sovereign God needs you to defend him. But, um, but there's a line from that rooted in the sense of anxiety, this fear of others, of hostile university professors, of sinister Muslims who strangle their daughters when they listen to Franklin Graham, of whatever, to from that to the kind of activism of the fourth movie where it's, hey, we got to go to D.C. and fight. And I'm reminded here of Baptist pastor, another Texan Landry like yourself, uh, Robert Jeffress, who supported Trump in 2016, saying government is to be a strong man to protect its citizens against evildoers. Well, I'm looking for somebody who's going to deal with ISIS and exterminate ISIS. I don't care about that candidate's tone or vocabulary. I want the meanest, toughest son of a you know what I can find. And I believe that's biblical. So like that attitude, like from that hey, uh, there's these threats out there, these big, scary, somewhat inchoate threats. Um, and that justifies us going on a wartime footing, uh, taking extreme measures and engaging in a kind of political fisticuffs to pr protect what we have from these sinister forces. That really, we see that arc in this movie and it's it's uh, interesting to see. That was the interesting political undertone of the second one or of the fourth movie, the second one that we watched was... On the one hand that, you know, we are on war footing, our our continued existence is contingent at best, um, which is just – and the portrayal of Congress as there's like the one evangelical Republican, but most of Congress is these progressives who will – like that a ranking committee member would say belief in God is irrational is just <laughs> – that is crazy. Like I, I looked this up. I was curious. So um, – about between 65 and 75% of Americans identify as Christian. Only about 23% of Americans identify as religiously unaffiliated or atheist. And the I didn't have the numbers, but I'm certain the vast majority of those are not atheists. They're just kind of like, I don't belong. I believe in God, but I don't belong to a faith. Um, and yet in Congress, there is one person who both in the House and the Senate, one person who identifies as religiously unaffiliated, not atheist, and 88% of Congress is Christian. So about 20 points higher than in the general population. Um, we are, our government is drenched in Christian imagery. God bless America is said at the end of every single speech. Like this, this was just totally disconnected from the, the reality of our the nature of our government like it's just it um and but what was what was interesting was that that sense of being the persecuted minority when in fact they are the majority and often the persecuting majority um was coupled with this this theme that runs in the first one and then in is very 
explicitly articulated in the second one, of everyone but us, because they reject God, which of course most Americans don't, but because they reject God, therefore are moral relativists. So therefore are like, they have no sense, they have no ability to believe in absolute truths. And and we are the only ones who can be, who can understand what is moral, what is right, because we get it from, it's a divine command theory. And on the one hand, divine command theory, like not even most theologians believe that divine command theory is the proper way to draw morality from religion. Um, it's a deeply problematic theory. I mean, this was Plato's Euthyphro dilemma, I think arguably puts a stake through it before Christianity even started. This is, was the, the question is, um, there was a guy who was very pious, and the question came up: Is it is it pious because God likes it, or does God like it because it's pious? And if you put that in a moral context, the question is: Is it moral because God says it is? But the problem with that is then we can't know that God is good because basically, by definition, everything God says would be good, and so goodness is. So you end up with a circular argument like it's to, to claim god is good is just basically to say god gives commands which isn't what's meant by the view that god is good but then if god says these things are moral because they're good then that means there's an external standard that we're pointing to and so we don't need the commands we can just say there's this goodness out there and we should follow that and so it's a problem for divine command theory but there are much more sophisticated arguments for religious morality this film these films seem unaware of like the actual state of Christian philosophy, and they would benefit a lot from reading like the best in Christian philosophy. But there's this authoritarian undertone that comes out of this, which is if if the government is corrupt um, and has been taken over by these progressives who by definition, because they are atheists, cannot be moral, or if they're moral, it's only accidental and like temporary. They've stumbled into it, but there's nothing tying them to it. And we, as this you know, persecuted minority Christian community, are the only people with access to absolute truth, then we can assert ourselves and should assert ourselves through like through the state, if we can take it over, through whatever it takes, because it's us against like an evil world. And that is just a recipe for. Um, in this case, a nationalist, because it's also clear like the only good foreigners in these movies are the ones who give up their foreignness, who give up their culture, who give up their religion, who become, you know, like obsessive about the American founding and so on. Um, and so it's this nationalist authoritarian worldview that is also like can't be reconciled in a liberal way. Like you can't have a pluralism with it because unless you accept these fundamental metaphysical beliefs, you can't be a good person. I mean, so maybe I should just note. I mean, we're not really talking about the the the, the content claims of the show, which is which is fine. Because I, I mean, funnily enough, we're actually going to be. I'd be relatively sympathetic to the. You know, I think people should be allowed to homeschool their kids. I don't think overweening bureaucrats should tell parents how to homeschool their kids. You know, like uh, if a university professor really did do that. They, they they should that, that's not appropriate to shove to literally physically assault a uh, a Christian student for not signing your silly pledge like you know so I'm sympathetic actually with the actors of uh, or the the agents if you will here but it's this weird um that 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 combination of anxiety propelling support 
for an authoritarian style of politics um, shows up in – I mean there's actually a connection to the real world. So in the show – the first – the first um, I'm not sure if in the fourth one that shows up in the notes, but in the, uh, in the credits – uh, of the first show, the Alliance Defending Freedom is uh, prominently featured in all the it's cases. It's in every one of it's the in all movies. Of them. Okay. They list all of the court cases in well, so, every film's credits. So the CEO of the ADF, and again, like situationally, sometimes libertarians have things to agree with these folks. This is not a critique of the organizations per se. But the uh, Michael Ferris, who's the CEO of the ADF and was the founder of the Homeschool Legal Defense uh, Association, um, he signed he was the author of Texas's um legal complaint trying to overturn the 2020 election basically saying that Texans rights as you know citizens and voters were being violated by Pennsylvania Arizona and whatnot for not acknowledging that the election had been stolen by Joe Biden and it didn't go anywhere in the court system but it's notable that the animating force behind the organization that clearly has some role in these movies supported an overt act of authoritarianism out of, I assume, that sense of anxiety, that fear that if Joe Biden wins, if Hillary Clinton wins, if Bill Clinton wins, you can go all, probably all the way back down the chart through the uh, the the aughts, 90s, and 80s, uh, then the progressives are going to take away our basic civil liberties and freedoms, which means, hey, it's okay to support authoritarianism, very literally. I mean, so I think thematically you're right, Aaron, 100%, but that is then translated into actual political action in a, a disturbing way. All of those cases also that are listed after all of these films, it's interesting because for a movie that is is so much about discussing and using the language that non-religious people would use when arguing about faith. You know, they're talking about proof and evidence and you come to a point where you just have different meaning-making processes opposing each other. Like there is eventually like the character in the first film who is debating Kevin Sorbo um, about, you know, the nature of the existence of God, he eventually – uh, you know, when he's standing up in front of the class, is using sources and drawing and sort of almost steel manning uh, a, a sort of way of uh, portraying atheism. It seems, but really, it's a secret straw man. But he's using the language of the people that he's debating in order to sort of level the playing field and make himself seem reasonable as you know a rhetor or something. Um, but at a certain point. He starts citing the Bible. You know, there's a shift, and they don't they don't call attention to it. But the evidence that we start using suddenly becomes tautological, self evident claims. But they treat them the same way. But the, and they start doing them really quickly so that you can't catch them. And it becomes you know fueled by emotion. And he starts screaming at Kevin Sorbo, telling me why do you hate God? And Kevin Sorbo breaks down and finally cracks and tells him that yes, I hate God because something was taken away from me. Because apparently that is the only reason that anyone in any of these films. That's the only motivation they have for claiming that God doesn't exist is that something was personally taken away from them and someone was hurt rather than the belief and all of the evidence that they claim to support. But then they continue to use proof of the basis of these films is that there are actual 
instances of anti-Christian persecution occurring in the United States every day. And at the end of the film, it's very much like based on a true story, kind of like, and then this happened. But they list all the ADF cases in these two big columns with like big uh, like paragraphs explaining decisions and the court names. So it looks all very like official and detailed. But if you pause the movie and you read all of them, half of them have nothing to do with actual religious liberty. I mean, they very rarely actually end in a, a success. Um, some of them are about education. Some of them are just about parents' rights more generally. The only thing that seems to unite them is that the ADF was somehow involved in the court case. And many times they're listed as not even going to trial. It it all has the veneer of evidence, but it's really just like a gish gallop of like evidence, so-and-so. So it, it made me wonder, like – I, I wanted to understand and come at this thinking, yes, there are obviously religious liberty things that happen that that violate people's religious liberty. And, and we see evidence of that, and there have been court cases where people have answered to that, but it is not as widespread as these films purport to. So uh, are there genuine threats to religious liberty in the United States today, you know, specifically, I mean, the film portrays the secular United States, but we have talked about how Christians overwhelmingly have much more power than any other religious minority. So are there religious liberty like limits and risks happening today, but maybe just not what the film wants to say? I mean, so there's a kernel of truth to 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 all of it, which is that I mean, there really are uh, overweening bureaucrats who who would lo love nothing more than to shut down homeschool uh, co-ops and whatnot. I, but it's all blown out of proportion. So I think actually the prox my guess is the proximate cause for the God's Not Dead Four, the 2021 film, was the brouhaha in 2020. Um, in homeschooling circles over a Harvard law professor, Elizabeth Bartlett, um, who who wrote a law a, um, an article for the Arizona Law Review, where she basically was like, "If you homeschool, uh, homeschooling it's it's basically child abuse. It's antisocial. It's and it shouldn't be allowed." And so, I mean, that was a real thing that happened. A professor said that, but it's it's here's the thing: it was in the Arizona Law Review. Um, this is not some like kind of mainstream position, right? It's like a, it's um, it's like finding some crazy state legislature in 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 uh, Iowa who you can find saying some idiotic thing about how, uh, you know, you can't get pregnant if you're raped, and like, but turning that into the mainstream position of like all right wing people that that's the thing that happens every now and again. Um, it's the it, it's the flip side of that, which is like finding some crazy out there and legitimately wrong, and and it would be dangerous if their views were mainstream, arguably for the cause of homeschoolers. But turning that into well, look, everyone who sends all public school supporters don't want you to have the right to to homeschool, and blowing it out of proportion. So a lot of these are rooted in legitimate kernels, legitimate challenges to um to religious freedom. Uh, but then it gets turned into this all-encompassing 
cloud of constant threat uh, to religious liberty and blown out of proportion. Um, so, you know, but that, that's what we do. To make something politically useful, that's what you do. You tell a story in which you blow threats out of proportion. Paranoia works as a movement-building exercise, and so I think that's what's going on here. So, I, yeah, I, I, again, it's one of those funny things where it's, you know, these are folks – if, if if the events in this movie were grounded in reality, if these things actually happened, I think we should be the first to, to sign up in the cause of trying to stop them from happening. But is this a reflection? Is this a uh, an accurate portrayal of, like, most people's lived reality? No. No, not at all, right? Yeah, and I think picking up on that and then the going back to, to what Landry had said about the way the argument plays out – in the first film, this shift from to basically just drawing from approved sources and throwing out things. I think that this is all a microcosm for how much for how much our politics works in general, like that, not just within the the small community that this movie's made for, but we are constantly like. So we all know that making arguments, you want to be able to say, I have evidence for my position. Right. Like in politics or anything else, you don't want to say, like, I believe this without evidence because that feels sketchy. It's like, you know, that people aren't going to accept it. It's, you know, we all want to be able to say we have good reasons for our views. But at the same time, most of the views that we hold didn't come to us from evidence. They're they're driven by tastes. They're driven by beliefs that, you know, we were given to us when we were too young to evaluate them. Based on evidence, they're given by kind of cultural tides, whatever. They're just not, you know, just gut reactions. That drives most of our beliefs, including in the political arena. Um, but we can't say that. And so then we look for evidence. And so this happened like in the, the gay marriage debates. You know, they didn't, the people who opposed gay marriage and gay relationships didn't say, I think we, sh I, we should make this illegal or we shouldn't give this the legal stamp of approval because gay marriages are yucky. I find them yucky. Like they couldn't say that, right? They couldn't do the emotivist thing. And so instead they started digging up all this quote unquote evidence about the effects of gay, like same sex parents on children and all this other, like they, they kind of started looking for evidence to support the underlying, this is yucky claim. Um, we get the same thing now with like transgender stuff that people who oppose kind of a rise of transgender rights are like, oh, well, it's dangerous for children or they're in the bathrooms or all that. And that evidence doesn't hold up at all. In fact, it turns out, you know, most of the violence is directed at transgender people by, you know, non-transgender people and so on. But it's this same like I can't just say that I've got this kind of underlying gut thing. Um, but it also it, it shows up in the left does it, too, of like people who disagree with me. Like these billionaires must be evil, right? Or the people who want to support markets must be greedy. Like we can't, it's, I, I can find kind of ways to dismiss their beliefs rather than engaging with the evidence. Or I will latch on to, there's a reason like Robert Reich is as popular as he's on Twitter because he gives an air of evidentiary support to kind of just progressive prejudices, that and and the and people who understand the economics look at his like just even on the left they kind of laugh at his tweets because they're so nonsense but they get passed around on the left because they look like evidence for these underlying gut things and 
notably, he looks like an authority too, right? So there's this interesting function of the way most of the arguments made, um, especially by the uh, by our atheist philosopher and by our uh, antipathetic, you know, Planned Parenthood supporting Congress people in the fourth movie movie are arguments for authority. So like uh, the 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 Christians will say something like, uh, you know, our our Christian student will stand up and say a thing. And he'll uh, Kevin Sorbo responds like, but Stephen Hawking is the smartest human ever who's ever existed. Who are you, a freshman, to challenge Stephen Hawking, author of seventeen books and chair of the Department of Physics, or you know whatever? And that keeps happening, which is weird because I I don't. That's not how like academic debates actually happen generally. Um, and uh, I, it, but it's it's. But what it exposes, I think, is it point to Aaron's point that it's easy. Like we have a thing we want to say, and a Congress, you know, Congressperson from the Republican or Democratic Party, they have a position they want in advance to advance, and they will go and find experts. You know, in the courtroom, you find expert witnesses who are, are will say whatever you want them to say, or already believe whatever you want. You, you select your expert witnesses to fit. So. That's kind of how we act in the political sphere anyways. Um, but it also, I think, says something about um, – I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but there's a, a, a evangelical historian named uh, Mark Knoll who wrote a book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It was a big deal in the evangelical scholarship circles half a quarter century ago. And um, in there, he, the problem with the scandal of the evangelical mind is there's not much of one is the famous line from the book. And what the critique was, was this simultaneous uh, that evangelical circles in America tend to have this simultaneous fascination with and and yearning for uh, intellectual respectability, but then also revulsion and dis- distaste towards it. They both desire it and fear it. And you kind of get that in here, like their idea of what uh, those people out there, those dangerous secularists and, and Congress people and whatnot – that to them, all that matters is intellectual respectability, chairs of this and smart people that, arguments from authority. Um, but they think that, again, this is all generated in the evangelical imagination. They think that because at their core, they worry that they don't have that thing. Um, they don't have that respectability. So th- anyways, for, for those who are interested in that topic, go read Molly Worthen's Apostles of Reason um, on this topic. But you see that surface in here. Uh, to the... To the, um, I think there's another point though. I think Aaron's right that this isn't, uh, if you will, an agnostic tendency. Um, that it's not just a conservative thing; it's a progressive thing. It's not just a Republican thing; it's a Democratic thing. That these we're describing what marks kind of the human condition in American politics and discourse. And another, I think there's another theme that fits with that. That I think where we can say, hey. Um, yes, in this case, we see it being displayed by the new Christian right folks in God's Not Dead, but that's more generally true of America. So that the fourth movie has a lot of that Christian nationalism symbolism. You know, they go to DC. And if there's anything that uh, new Christian right folks love doing, it's doing tours of DC where they point out all the Bible verses inscribed in marble. I did one. There's a guy named David Barton, who's an amateur oh. historian. Wall has, builders, baby. Wall builders. You know wall builders. Okay. Toledo, Texas is own. Yeah. It's always come back. It always comes back to Texas. Even the Christian nationalism is bigger in Texas. Um, 
And I did a tour with David Barton when I was a high school student. He would do these, you know, like free tours for high school kids. And um, yeah, every time like, oh, there's Moses in the Supreme Court chambers. There's a Bible verse there. Of course, he they would leave out all the symbolism that doesn't fit that Christian nationalist vision. So there would be like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Muslim iconography, uh, uh, even I think some places Buddhist, but not so much Buddhist because it's a little bit late for the arrival. But there would be other great religious figures from world religions along with Moses or Abraham or, or you know, other great texts from world religions other than the Bible. But those, of course, got left off. But that, again, that Christian nationalist reimagining of our civic space, civic space, that civic religion is not just a new Christian right thing, right? Every time that uh, Ronald Reagan talked about, or or Bill Clinton would talk about a city on a hill, uh, they are buying into that idea of America as this special, uh, exceptional space chosen by God, lowercase g or capital G, depending on who's speaking it. Um, that habit of going to DC and seeing it as this kind of like sacred space, whatever that might mean, like that's a broadly American, well, depending on one's priors, American heresy. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we have, a, a, so it's easy to make fun of the movies for their kind of particularly uh, 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 brutish version of this, but it's a sin common to, uh, I think, American politics and the American political mind. We all kind of do this. When you were talking about the sort of parallels between new Christian right and, you know, hardcore left and, you know, the like it's all dirty capitalists versus, you know, it's these like these academics who are, you know, stripping our schools of, you know, there's there's no prayer in schools anymore or whatever. Yeah, yeah. All I could think about was the scene when they the dinner party scene in the first film when they go to either Kevin Sorbo or his girlfriend's house um we i cuz we found out they're not married they are dating i don't know whose house they were at it was very nice so he must have a very very lucrative college professor position he's apparently trying to be a chair or something i don't know how cuz Anyway, it looked very nice. And all of him and his friends from the department who are in their like tweed and their sweater vests (laughs) are sitting around there with giant glasses of red wine and he's holding court and laughing about this silly student who could prove the existence of God. And they all ha 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 and they, you know, sniff, you know, they sort of spin their wine. And like all I could think about was is if this was a movie from the left, it would be a bunch of old men in suits with cigars. Cigars, like pushing money across a table. It's the same imagery going on. They've just changed the sort of like icons of what these these like powers represent. And that's throughout the entire film. It gets like that. Um, so that was that was just one of my favorite parts so in, of the movie. You know, that scene's great because it's like his his girlfriend who's Christian and who which clearly today that would be all kinds of kind of me too issues with him like uh, dating her dating as a student. A student. Yeah. At <laughs> least I waited until you aced the midterm. I was like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh my god." Yeah, yeah, it lands a little differently now than in 2014 or whatever. But um but they, he makes fun of her for not knowing how to handle the merlot. You know, and like, but you, you can imagine the flip version of that where it's like a bunch of white billionaire guys being like, oh, 
my my wife doesn't know how to like deal in NFTs. How, what silly, you know, it'd be the same kind of like a uh, same kind of mood. Um, yeah, it's 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 something. Hey, I, I gotta give a shout out to Kevin Sorbo. I mean, like. Of all the actors in the movie, I mean, it's over the top, sure, but by the standards of the rest of the of the cast, you know, he he brought his uh, he brought everything to it. He and, uh... <laughs> acts circles around everyone in the cast, and I I was looking through and watching. I watched uh, sort of little bits of the middle two films as well, and then along with the second, they blow the budget. It must be on one casting choice. Every film, they're like, we got to get one people. We got to get a ringer in here who's going to yeah. fix everything. And they get Kevin Sorbo for the first one, but I guess they couldn't afford him for two films, so they were like, bring in the car. Um, and then in the second film, we get Melissa Joan Hart, my childhood crush. Oh. Clarissa explains it all. Um, and then in the third film, we get John Corbett of uh, Sex and the City fame. Uh, and in the fourth one, Isaiah Washington, uh, who, I mean, is is not... He's on Grey's Anatomy, and I will say he's committed to the bit <laughs> in this film. Everybody else is kind of like it's very like infomercially stiff, but there is one person in every single movie that is committed, a hundred percent Michael Caine in the Muppet movie level dedication to the role. And I do have to give it to Kevin Sorbo. It is a uh, pardon my pun, Herculean effort that he has undertaken here. Well, and there's that great shot of when he gets hit by the car. It's actually like Matrix-like. He's up in the air and like, ah. They also really love to make you feel things by hitting people with cars because the same thing happens in the fourth film, um, which, it, and it comes out of nowhere. It really just, it's one of those, like, they throw the curveball in, but I was like, oh, another car, another car accident, which is true. Car accidents are very dangerous <laughs> and prevalent, so you should wear your seatbelt and look both ways before crossing the street. What I found, like, I was reading some reviews of the movies, and this struck me in the first one, speaking of that car thing, is it's, that whole scene is not particularly well shot, or it's not, it's not well edited, and so it's not, like, a lot of people in reviews, and I confess, I thought this at, like for a moment and then realized like, no, it was the shot cutting, is it looks like the pastor's the guy who run him, ran him down. Because yes. they cut from them Which in the car great. to him yes. getting hit by a car. And then it's only like a later shot where you kind of see, um, and a lot of the reviews, people were like, oh my God, like they had the pastor run him over and then tell him this was cause for celebration, which is not, <laughs> which is, like I said, not actually the message of the film, but um, it is like the the quality of filmmaking could have could have been better. I have a fan theory. So, you know, Game of Thrones, people had their fan theories. Here's my fan theory, which is that, so the car that actually hits them is, is anonymous. You don't really know who it is, but here's my theory, um, is that, that you then see a car later on with the, a boyfriend, like hedge fund manager, business guy. Yes. And he gets a text, the text that says, hashtag God's not dead. And then he like throws it to the side. But here's my fan theory is that that's the reason why he hit Kevin Sorbo. Whoa. The God's not dead text when distracted him while he was driving, he kills Kevin Sorbo and keeps going. So or at least because I think he's parked <laughs> when he gets the text because yeah, he's he just left the home, but fueled by his yeah. rage, he hits him. <laughs> 
Get, wow. Yeah, yeah, you it know, they pulled this work. like they pulled this like Cloud Atlas, Love Actually, like synergy of bringing all the stories together. And for 50 minutes of the film, you have <laughs> no idea how they're going to tie this together. These films have no dramatic structure. It is just scene, scene, sad song set to music, scene, scene, sad song set to music, and then 30 minutes of speeches for the last third of the film. And it is just like, I cannot take it the way that they do this. That was it's exhausting. The end of the last one, the speech, not his speech, but there's the scene where the homeschooling parents are standing around and they all like in in the round quote the constitution yes. and then and it, <laughs> they it was, all do the preamble and it has this it has this part where it's like teeing up that there are other that there are homeschoolers who aren't just christians and it's going around Which, and these point. families have great. like yeah, good, good reasons sure. so you get the you get the one couple who's like the schools in our area are are terrible and so we want our kid to go to get a good education cool um and then the person who I think their child is like special needs or maybe gifted and is not going to get cool. And then you get the mom who's like, and I, I just don't want to give my kids safe life-saving vaccinations. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I'm, you know, it's like, they just are bringing. <laughs> Something but for everyone. They all listened to the schoolhouse rock song of the preamble and they memorized it just like me. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the theory of government in the fourth movie? Like I got confused that like somehow there's congressional hearing and that will just become a law somehow. Well, and then there's at like one point the they local even family say, court judge. And... They also say at one point, like, I think you misunderstood what the purpose of this hearing was. And the parents <laughs> are like, what do you mean? Isn't this going to change anything? And I was like, no, they have no purview over the family court in Hope Springs, whateverville, in whatever state Judge Janine Pirro is the judge of family court for. Also, I will say... The congressman who chairs the committee at one point says that they have an 83% approval rating. Yeah, who has an yeah. 83% approval rating? Is he talking about Congress? Is he talking about him? Is he talking about like the 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 administration? Who what what person will be like, "You know what? 83% of people support this." There is a serious point here though, which is that again, that sense of like there's this vaguely defined sinister other that's oppressing us, the persecution complex, is that, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Like all these different government entities are all part of this inchoate, ill-defined, oppressive mass that are coming down on Christians. Um, And so there is this, yeah, vague sense. They don't even have to bother tying things together. It's just like the family court judge, the, the state level bureaucrat from Child Protective Services, the congressional you know, the congressional hearing is they're all it's all just kind of one big mass out to get us. So it kind of feeds into that um, into that persecution complex. Um, I, I was going to say I have another one more fan theory I'd like to throw out there, which is that secretly um, almost in a uh, like, a, uh, you know, an alternate reading kind of way uh, uh, that this is the first movie is actually an advertisement for why universities are great. It's like a pro-university statement. Because if you think about it, if you just change the framing a little bit, it's like, hey, look, isn't this good? Like a Christian kid can go to philosophy class and the, the professor will give him like 
half of his lecture for three lectures in the road to argue about his faith. And like it ends in this standing ovation from the whole class declares that God, God isn't dead. And, and, and students from around the world come and like learn how wonderful America is from China, from Africa, from uh, the Middle East. And, and they can find Jesus and learn things. And like, it's the whole thing, funnily enough, is like, yeah. The kids are all right. Universities are pretty cool. <laughs> it very much plays against the fear that we see a lot in cancel culture about the decline of, you know, you know, you could say like coddling of the American mind, you know, or or, yeah. or other sort of like this fear that is obviously uh, there is some reality to it. But this movie does a good job of being like, no, we have open debate on a college yeah, campus and yeah. no one no one was like, I don't want to be a part of this. Like the, all of the students are like. Yeah, I'll come to class every day and listen to a freshman debate my philosophy professor, and then we'll all stand up and say that God's not dead because apparently that's how they're doing the vote. One of the students just decides that, no, we're not going to like write our votes or raise our hands. We all have to individually stand up and say (laughs) what we think. Um, And then they all get covered up. Like there's probably – some of those students that voted that God was dead already, but because everyone's shouting their votes over each other, you don't really hear it. <laughs> so given all of this and given this, you know, we discussed this kind of this worldview, which of imagining the threats are much greater than they are, imagining that there's more opposition to your views than there actually are, imagining yourself to be a persecuted minority when you're not – and that this is not unique to the evangelical community that's watching these films, but is a theme that runs through. How do we dig out of that? Like, how do you how do you convince people that, in fact, there's not nearly as much of a threat to them as they believe there is, which seems to be imperative for not just the health of the country, but for a a more pro-liberty politics because people are much more willing to let others live the way they want to and go about their lives if they don't perceive those other people as a direct threat to themselves. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it it's kind of I, – I just actually – I just wrote a book review of a biography of the founder of the John Birch Society. And one of my takeaways from it was that the best way to combat conspiracy theories, conspiracism – and there's a lot of conspiracism in this, if it's a little bit more sublimated, um, is not that it's downstream from usually more structural and institutional problems. So the best way to combat this sense of embattlement is to be sure these people, is to do what you can to uh, remove the, 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 there's that kernel of truth to most of these things, right? So put yourself in the shoes of this, this family in the fourth one, um, where they're afraid that their people are going to come and shut down their homeschooling co-op. Well, I mean, there are stories of overzealous bureaucrats who do mess with the rights of homeschoolers. Uh, and, and you know, I think our our colleagues in the education department at Cato would say, look, here's a great example of why we need more school choice. Why, like, we're kind of setting ourselves up for these kind of conflicts between people who don't understand each other by forcing them all into the same space, by forcing them all to educate their kids in the same way. I mean, like I take, for example, you know, the big horror moment was like my kid brought home from school uh, a lesson about birth control. 
And I was like, wow, I mean, we really are. It's like a throwback to the 1970s and all the the birth control debates in, in school education. But like I, and it was a second grader. I have a second grader. I would be happy for my second grader to learn about basic sex ed and birth control in second grade. Not because I want him to go have sex, but because at some point you have to start that. I'm comfortable with that as a parent. But at the same time, I recognize that that's not true for all parents. But because he's in the same school system with a one-size-fits-all uh, curriculum, we're, we're pitting two communities against each other. Someone always has to lose. And, and so maybe we do less of that. Maybe we do less of pitting people against each other by forcing them into a one-size-fits-all industrial-modeled educational system um, run by the state. So like we're, we are setting ourselves up for this kind of failure. We're setting ourselves up for lots of misunderstanding, for conspiracism, for irrational fear, for blowing legitimate threats into big threats. So maybe we do less of that. Maybe we, we, we get the state out of things it doesn't absolutely have to be in. I don't know. That's, that's, I think that's my response. I mean, if we want to, you know, really appeal to the people that, I mean, honestly, it, I would understand if people, if if the Christian crowd would be angry and sort of frustrated with the way we have portrayed a lot of them, uh, I, I would stand by what I said. But I think I would understand that they have the value of, and even people who are not Christian would understand that you should treat people the way that you would want to be treated. There is, you know, it's it's the golden rule. And so appealing to those people by understanding where they're coming from and at least offering them the respect that you desire. Um, and I think everybody needs to do that. And there might be some people that need to do that a little bit more than others. But I think it's up to every single person to remind ourselves of that virtue and what that means and the objective good that that type of heuristic uh, you know, drives us towards. Um, and so constantly reminding ourselves of that, you know, religious motivations or, you know, completely atheistic is a good way of of looking at things. And it's it's at least a starting point to start having those conversations that Paul was talking about specifically. So whether or not you think it is because God is not dead or he is dead, I think that is a logical, uh, uh, affirming and community-driven response to uh, wanting to build bridges between people and create a, a shared understanding that allows everyone's individual liberty to flourish. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of Libertarianism.org, is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by myself and our director and editor, Aaron Ross Powell. To learn more, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org.